This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. On this week's show, we have a quartet of artists who the Missouri Arts Council has chosen as their featured artists for the month of April. There's a wood sculptor who got a commission from the Emperor of Japan, a spoken word poet who finds inspiration in an ancient Japanese art form, a painter who rarely uses a paintbrush, and a musician who plays orchestral arrangements on a guitar. We've got stops in Augusta, Kansas City, St. Louis and Stockton Lake. So let's start just off the Katy Trail in the woods of Augusta. In a world where most of us struggle to explain what we mean, Augusta-based sculptor Michael Bauermeister found an eloquence of voice and vocabulary through the medium of wood, which he describes as inspiring, forgiving and inherently beautiful. His works include human-sized freestanding vessels and 12-foot-long wall panels that seem to ripple and flow of their own accord. Michael has been at the forefront of contemporary American wood art for almost 30 years. He has works in multiple museums, including the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. and the Boston Museum of Art. His work is in two embassies around the world as part of the State Department's Art in Embassies program, and he has been featured on the cover of the prestigious American Craft magazine. The number of exhibits he has been in and awards he has won is longer than multiple arm lengths, but I love that the very first entry on his long list of exhibits is Columbia's very own Bluestone Gallery, where he had a solo show of his carved bowls back in 1995. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Michael. It's nice to be here, Diana. Thank you so much for that introduction. I, I think you said it all. I think we're done now. <laughs> <laughs> that was so well said. I don't know what I could possibly add. <laughs> Just a couple of minor additional points. But yeah, that show at Blue Stem was my first solo show, and I remember it well. It was a lot of fun. So when you get not one, but two works in the Smithsonian Museum, do you check off the bucket list, get work into major museum, or do you instead add to the list, get work into MoMA? Yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of my <laughs> approach. I, I'm uh, never satisfied, but, but that was a thrill to have my two pieces included in different galleries of the Smithsonian. That made my day. <laughs> How did that come about? Their curator found me at a show on the East Coast where I was showing my work. And I can't remember which show. I think it was in Baltimore. But she became a great supporter of my work. And, and she was, at the time, the curator at the Renwick Gallery. And when a collector wanted to donate a piece, she jumped on it. Oh. So that's how that happens. Mainly they're donated by collectors. But they're very picky about what they allow into their <laughs> collections because then they have to take care of it forever. Right. So, yeah. Are you happy with the works that they have? I mean, if it was donated by somebody else, it wasn't your choice of what was in there. Well, that's right. But I do try to like most anything that I put my name on. <laughs> and, and the pieces that they got, one was a kind of complicated sculptural piece with a really interesting finish that I liked a lot. And then the other piece was 
more of a tabletop vessel, which really represents much of my work over the years. So I was glad to have kind of both those bases covered. Tell me a little bit about your journey to being a sculptor of wood. I read that from sixth grade, you knew you wanted to be a sculptor because you loved making clay figures in school. But how did wood become your medium? What was that journey? Well, that part of it happened at the Kansas City Art Institute, where I was a sculpture student in the 70s. And I worked with a lot of different media, steel, plastic, bronze, clay, you know, just about everything. But I I started working with wood and I just felt so comfortable with it that I, um, toward the end of my stay at the Art Institute, I just focused full time on wood sculpture. And then when I graduated with a degree in sculpture, I couldn't really figure out how to make a living as a sculptor. They didn't teach that that class. And so we had a young family. And so I started making furniture because I knew how to work with wood. And for about 10 years, I I made custom furniture, and I really enjoyed that process, too. It wasn't as satisfying as making sculpture, but it did satisfy some of my sculptural desires. And then in about the early 90s, I came up with this idea of a new way to make a wooden bowl. And my friend Sam Stang, the glassblower, who also lives in Augusta, we actually went to high school together, but but Sam said that I should show those unique sculptural wood bowls at the uh, Baltimore American Craft Council show, and uh, I did that and kind of never looked back. It was I found a, a great audience of people that really appreciated the work and wanted to buy it, and um, I became a regular at that show every year. So, what was that technique that you discovered for how to make a bowl differently? Well, most wooden bowls are turned on a lathe where the piece of wood is spinning and you hold a carving tool up to it and shape it. And I have done that over the years too, and I still do some of that kind of work as part of my work. But the technique I worked out involved the bandsaw and sawing out layers of wood, which were then glued together. And using that technique, I could make shapes that were not round. So they could be, as seen from above, they could be just about any shape. And I was also not limited in terms of size because I could just keep gluing more pieces on and make really big ones. (laughs) So that was kind of my breakthrough moment. And um, I figured out ways to carve them and finish them that were different and that people hadn't seen before. And, you know, that's kind of what it takes to, to get noticed in the art biz is something that people haven't seen before. Right. And and that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about is what sets your work apart is the way that you texture your sculptures and the wall panels, the surfaces of them. And you by carving gouges into the woods and you create a surface full of dimples, which you're able to make look like pebbles or ripples or leaves. And I'm curious about that moment of discovery when you thought, oh, wow, this is my voice. This is my unique quality. Tell me about that, finding your gouging voice, yeah. as it were. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly right. And um, the the texture, the many different textures that I've come up with depend on the kind of wood I'm working with and the kind of tools I'm working with. But in general, most wood bowls at that time anyway were very smooth. 
And um, I'd made enough furniture that I was kind of tired of sanding wood to a, to a polish. <laughs> <laughs> I'll still do it once in a while. But I decided if I could come up with another way to finish wood that was different and had some different textures, that I was all about that. So um, now I've also, somewhere in there in, in about 2000, I started adding color to the work. I'd always, I guess I always had added a little color, but I started really getting serious about adding color. I, I remember asking my wife, Gloria, because she's an artist too, and I asked her if she was interested in adding color to my work and we could collaborate. She could paint on them, and she said, no, do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and I figured it out, and, and uh, that now is a big part of my process, and I really enjoy it. A lot of the work that I make now not to jump too far ahead, but a lot of the work I make now hangs on the wall and has a kind of pictorial element to it that incorporates the different textures and the different colors. And I can make those gouge marks look like pebbles on a beach or, or leaves in the forest or all kinds of different natural textures that I see in the, the world around me. And when I look at your wall your two deck, well, not really two dimensional, but your hanging pieces. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have these, uh, using the same process, you almost have multiple textures. So there are pebbles, but there's also ripples of water. And part of that is to do with, I guess, the finishing process, your use of lacquer and pigments and, and how you sand into those colors to create these different kind of layers and um, visual effects. Talk a little bit about that process of finishing. That's right. Yeah. Um, the medium of radio is kind of limited because people can't <laughs> see what I'm talking about. But I encourage you to go to my website, michaelbauermeister.com. And there are plenty of examples there. But I do like a challenge. And a few years ago, I decided I wanted to try to make wood look like water. And so these panels that hang on the wall, they're not really flat, like you said. They they are gently waving from top to bottom like, like waves. And then the carving is done to look like the little ripplets on the surface of the water. And then the finishing really makes that pop out using some different techniques of of layers of color, like you mentioned, and sanding. I can make make the little ripples really, really pop out and they look different in all different kinds of light. I love the way the work changes in different kinds of light. And then I, I got the idea that if I put pebbles at the bottom and water at the top and then in the middle where the water meets the shore, I wanted to create the illusion of the pebbles going under the water. And that again was a great challenge and it took me several tries to get it right. But uh, I finally made that would really almost look transparent, I think. That's what I've been told. And uh, make those little pebble shapes go under the water and kind of recede into pure water as it goes up the panel. And, uh, yeah, that that is the kind of challenge that I like. It is brilliantly and beautifully done. Is it a challenge to photograph it? Yes. Yes, it is. The surface is pretty glossy. It's covered with many coats of lacquer and to photograph that without a whole lot of distracting reflections is a challenge and then you know just to get that feel of the experience that you have when you look at it from a distance and you see one thing and you walk up close and you see something very different and 
that's hard to do with photographs, but I've been lucky with it because people will buy them just based on a photograph. I just sold a big one yesterday. <laughs> and it kind of amazes me when, <laughs> when just based on an online photograph, people will say, yes, that's, that's what I want. 30 years ago, when you started creating your sculptures inspired by nature, the idea of climate change and, and the care for the environment was really kind of in its infancy. But times have changed. How much do you want a narrative about the environment to be present in your work? That's something that I think about all the time because I'm, like most thinking people, I'm pretty concerned about climate change and, and I am always trying to figure out ways to have my my work, especially the wall panels, have some kind of a narrative to them that addresses that issue. But at the same time, I, you know, I want to make artwork that people want to hang in their house and look at every day. I don't, I don't want to go across the line into really upsetting and ugly work. So it, it's a challenge, but, but uh, it's something that I, I spend a lot of time thinking about. When I look through your list of exhibits that you've been in, there were two entries that I wanted to ask you about. One is having your work included in the 2008 Warner Brothers movie Nights in Rodin. Oh, yeah. And the other, more recently, in 2018, when you got a commission from the Emperor of Japan. Those sound like great stories. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about those. Yeah, well, the Knights and Rodanth deal was, you know, one of those that just kind of comes out of nowhere. Some, suddenly there's somebody on the phone saying they want to rent some seven of my pieces. And, I, you know, my first thought is this is some kind of a scam. But, <laughs> right. um, you know, we worked it out and, and I saw the movie and they really were in there and then they sent them back. So it all worked out. And that was a lot of fun. I, my friends really enjoyed that. And then the uh, the Emperor of Japan deal, I, I still don't know where that came from. And talk about not believing it when I got the phone call because it, it, what he wanted was a hoe handle for he's an avid gardener and um, they had found a blacksmith to make the head of the hoe and they and then they wanted me to make the handle and and that's not really my thing you know but, yeah. but it is it is made on the lathe and I have a great big lathe so not many people have a lathe that size so I was able to do it and it was it was a fun job, and uh, I wish I could have met him, but I just sent it off. And <laughs> Did you embellish it and give it the Michael Bauermeister look? Well, you know, I had to. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it was uh, made out of white oak, but I, I did a little of my signature carving on a few parts of it, put a little bit of color on there. But it would it would actually function. I wanted it to be a functional hoe, so I couldn't go too far. <laughs> Did you get a thank you note? Uh not from the emperor himself, but the designer I worked with was very pleased with it. So. so before we close, where can people see your work in person? What galleries are you in? Probably the best places in Missouri are, one, my studio. If you go to my website, send me an email, we can arrange a time to meet at the studio. And I do have a little display space there. And then um, right nearby in Augusta, Missouri, the Gallery Augusta has some of my pieces, and they also sell all kinds of furniture and accessories, and, and they're really good folks. I've been working with them for a long time. So in Missouri, those would be the best two places. And from time to time, you mentioned that you also are in the Sega Reeves Gallery. That's right. 
That's right. Yeah, it's been a little while. Um, I haven't been going out to any shows or other places for the last couple of years, but uh, I've worked with them many times over the years in group shows and, and commissions. Well, to see the work of Michael Bauermeister, visit his website at michaelbauermeister.com. And if you are passing along the Casey Trail in Augusta, Missouri, and you see an old general store building surrounded by woods, then you'll have found Michael's studio and gallery. (laughs) Michael, thank you so much for making time to chat about your work today. Well, thank you, Diane. It's been a pleasure. Sherry Purpose Hall packs more into a day than I pack into a month. She's a multimedia artist, owns her own publishing company, is an ordained minister, a poet, an award-winning author, the founder of East of Red Art House, a nonprofit focused on art and economic development, and also a mother of four children. She has written four books too, a book of poetry, epistles and essays titled Black Girl Shattered, two poetry chapbooks, Melange du Femme Noir and Chosen for Both, and a workbook called Writing Wrongs, Writing to Heal, which won an award from Bike for the Brain, a non-profit organization that works to reduce mental health stigma. In 2019, she received Kansas City's Charlotte Street Generative Performing Artist Award. She won the Poet and Activist Award at the Music and More Foundation Poetry Awards for two years in a row and was nominated for Best Spoken Word Artist in the KC People's Choice Awards. The list of accolades goes on, but at the heart of it all is Sherry's fundamental and passionate belief that BIPOC people must own and shape their own narratives and protect their own cultural heritage. So I'm delighted that we've been able to find a time to chat, as I know her time has many demands upon it. Welcome to Speaking of the Art, Sherry. Thank you for having me. There is a beautiful tribute to you in the foreword of your book, Black Girl Shattered, written by a fellow Kansas City poet, educator and activist called Glenn North, who says, Sherry Purpose Hall is many things. She is a kind and gentle spirit who brings a sense of warmth and tenderness to every room she enters. She's a gale force wind who wrecks microphones and blows back the head of anyone who happens to be in the audience when she takes the stage. Are these two inner forces equally balanced or are you more gale force wind or more tender? It depends on the day. (laughs) (laughs) The day, the activity, the person, it just depends. And so Glenn then goes on to say that to borrow the words of Walt Whitman, you contain multitudes and you only need to read the list of the things that you do to understand that your multitudes of talent are extensive and also really time consuming. How do you find the time and the space, the mental space to write? To be honest, it is hard to find the space. Um, I have what I will call dispensations of discipline, right? Sometimes my discipline is at the mountaintop. Sometimes my discipline is in the valley. And in those valley places, I'm living and I'm trying to live. And what I call the valley places may be artistically valley places, but may not be technical writing places. So a lot of times for me to be the artist, I have to shut off my administrative mind Mm -hmm. or have to be able to at least separate myself from that. So when I'm in the valley of the dispensation, I am probably doing more grant writing, 
maybe doing more essays, doing more policy procedure, even scientific articles, as opposed to poetry, art, or literary arts, if that makes sense. I've watched your performance videos on your website, and you have a vast and beautiful dynamic range from that tenderness to gale force that Glenn North talks about. And you're also an ordained minister. And I wonder how much one oration style informs the other. How do those two worlds of speaking your truth overlap? So with regards to ministry versus performance, um, I know it's called performance, but for me, it's not really performance. For me, it is conjuring up a point in time and interacting with the audience and communicating. And it's the same thing for preaching. It is remembering why I'm here, the spirit that I'm operating in, and again, communicating with the audience. And what I mean by communications is the very much sender, transmission, receiver process. However I am transmitting the message, it doesn't matter as long as it is received by the other end. And as long as I send out everything of me that I need to send out, it is my goal to die empty. Stuff was put in me for a reason, and I got to empty it out. I cannot imagine an audience listening to you who isn't completely wrapped. You are not a speaker that somebody has a side chat <laughs> during. <laughs> You it's own. Has <laughs> you are kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> you own the entire space that you were in. Well, thank you. I, I try, you know, and it is hard because I am an introvert by nature, but it doesn't mean that I'm shy. So the little bit of time while I'm out that I've gathered enough energy of myself to be out and deal with people and the spirits that come with them. You know, I guess I feel this um, urgency to give what I have to give, because at a certain point, I'm going to need to go back into my hiding place and recharge. Mm. There is a beautiful quote by you about how poetry is the historian of the soul's lamentations, the fight mm. igniter of the spirit and the wings that allow tired feet to fly. Poetry speaks life. Where does your love of language come from? So my mother is a person who always wanted me to speak properly. I have a different viewpoint at this age. But back then, of course, I'm a child. I'm being, I'm being taught. And properly is proper American English, right? I had an aunt who was also a kindergarten teacher, between those two and the rest of my family, this is where the teaching comes from. I began to love language because I saw that I was able to bend and shift. It's almost like being able to be an airbender mm. with words. And I was able to find catharsis in it. And so now as a spoken word poet, are those early lessons something that you are really grateful to your mother for, for, for giving her that? Is that her influence in your work? That is some of her influence. The rest of the influence is me being a rebel 
I'm rebellious. I am Tarzan. My pastor knows I'm Tarzan. I joke about it often and I try <laughs> not to embarrass him. Um, so as for as proper as I can be, I call especially people of color bilingual or even polyglots, right? Mm. So we can speak the American English. We may even toy around with Queen's English, but Ebonics slang is a whole other language. And being able to transition between the two is a skill that we have to use often. Me being a rebel, speaking outside in front of people on stages in slang, even in foul language, yada, 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 but still yet using it appropriately in poetic form, that is a skill. In your book, Black Girl Shattered, you refer to the Japanese art of kintsugi, and if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Mm -hmm. which is both an art and a philosophy, the art of repairing broken ceramics, usually using precious metals mixed with lacquer, but also the idea, the philosophy that fault lines should be shown and venerated as they are part of the history of that particular object. Talk to me about how this is a metaphor for the experience of of Black women? Black women are kintsugi art. And it's funny that even cross-culturally, we are able to find similarities that explain our individual human experiences. A lot of times we get broken. The vessel of the woman, period, Black or not, gets broken in this life. And you have two choices. You either repair and walk forward or sit there and leak. Those are the two choices you have. A lot of us have to repair and move forward because our families and our our communities and our sisters and our brothers depend on us. So we glue and patch ourselves up and we move forward. The thing about it um, here in this culture, when you glue a vessel back together, you normally use clear glue and you want it to be the stickiest glue that you can find that will hold something the strongest. While that holds true also for Japanese art, that it may be the stickiest and strongest, what they're going to do is outline that crack with gold, with 24 karat gold, or even platinum, because that adds more character to the piece and makes it more it makes it worth more than it was originally when it was unbroken. Our experiences and our healing are worth so much to the people that we touch. That is the gold. The gold is not pretending to never have had any adversity. The gold is being able to show up, even with your adversity, walk forward and show someone else how to line their cracks with gold. I love that. Would you be able to read something from the book for us? Sure. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're going to read. So this poem is called Dear Life, and it is kind of self-explanatory, but it is a short epistle to life because of the changes that life has sent me through. So I had to write back to it. And whether we recognize it or not, we often have a conversation with life, whether it be in tears or laughter. I just was able to transform this particular conversation into words. So this poem is called Dear Life. 
Dear Life, I think I am supposed to be gritty like sand in order to survive you. I think I am supposed to be the kind of thing that can smooth edges yet be put through the fire and made into something transparent and easily broken. I think I'm supposed to be the type of thing that, when easily broken, has the ability to cut and draw blood. Yet you seem to want me to possess sand while being timeless, like a faulty hourglass spilling its contents, spreading itself way too thin across an unforgiving, restless sea. Somehow, you want me to stick around and just... Sink in, be unseen and unheard, but functional. Maybe I'm full of myself. At any rate, it doesn't change what you require and your requirements don't change my composition. I can only be who I am. I can either refine, be refined, or harm. Choose who you want me to be. Signed, every woman. P.S. Choose wisely. I love it. You divide the book into sections titled Sand, Clay, Broken Shards, Faux Repair and Gold Repair. And I'm curious, where are you on that journey from sand to gold repair? The journey is not linear. Hmm. As things happen in life, you continue to go through those cycles. And sometimes you have to patch a thing up and pretend and fake it until you make it. But that only lasts for so long. You can only put a piece of gauze over a gunshot for so long. Mm. <laughs> and so you actually have to go get the thing checked out. So for me, where am I? I am somewhere between faux and gold at this point. I've had a lot of things happen in the past year, even in the past day, that have shaken and rattled. And I have to heal. And then I have to be able to translate that healing into lessons for myself. My daily affirmation right now is learn the lesson, sis. Learn the lesson. Mm-hmm. With so many achievements already behind you and so many projects underway, what is in your sights? What's on your bucket list? Bucket list includes a PhD, Missouri Poet Laureate. I, I am a competitive person. Um, I also, with regards to Pinfire Publishing, I want to, on my bucket list, I want to see at least 20 other writers flourish. I want to watch it. I want to see them blossom. I want to see their works in libraries. I, I just want to see it. I feel sure that you will do all of those and then probably a little bit more besides that. <laughs> you can watch some of Sherry Purpose Hall's spoken work performances on her website at spokenpurpose.com and you can order a copy of her book, Black Girl Shattered from Skylark Bookshop here in Columbia. Sherry, thank you so much for squeezing us into your crazy busy schedule. It was a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me and I appreciate the time. 20 plus years ago, there was a cracking British comedy called Spaced, in which one of the characters, one of the main characters, Brian, was an artist. And one of my favourite scenes is where he meets the new neighbours. And after telling them he's an artist, they ask him, oh, what kind of thing do you do? And he says, anger, pain, fear, aggression. And they reply after a moment's bafflement, watercolours? <laughs> 
I was reminded of that sketch when reading about artist Kelly Carmen, who says that her artwork is an attempt to decipher the babble in her brain and wade through her everyday chaos. Kelly splits her time between her home and studio in St. Louis and her family farm near Paris, Missouri. And she definitely has a much more uplifting colour palette than Brian of Spaced. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Kelly. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So if you told someone you were an artist and they said to you, oh, what kind of thing do you do? What would you tell them? I would tell them I typically do anything that makes me happy at the point in time. (laughs) Um, I don't follow probably always the same thing. I love to do crazy abstracts, which is typically my husband would tell you the, the chaos that's in my brain or what my brain looks like if someone would put it on a canvas. And then I choose things that are from my childhood or bring up great memories or are just kind of unusual in the world, like a a web-seated lawn chair or a bicycle with a banana seat. And then we spend a lot of time at the farm. So landscapes have always been attractive to me. I love the way the light looks, um, especially at the golden evening and in the morning um, and how it just changes and the sky's painted Every day it's different. So those are kind of the three things that most of my artwork falls around. Yeah, you definitely have multiple voices in your work. And if you showed me a work from each collection, the abstract work, the pop art, the landscapes, the stripes, the more geometric abstracts, I would think I was looking at work from different artists. How do these different styles of work reflect different aspects of your life? Well, I think that's just it. I generally paint to make myself happy. And especially during the pandemic, I'm a bit of a whirling dervish and I don't sit still very well. So I really had to keep myself busy and doing things that made me happy so that that chaos that (laughs) that scrambles around in my brain had something to focus on. So I think that's just it. I think that I don't always paint for an audience as far as to sell something. Um, I'm always happy when I do. And and I do commissions where people ask me for something specific or a color palette that's specific or, you know, they, they want a landscape because they've looked at those and they, they like those and they want a certain color palette. But I think I paint mainly to make myself happy. So it's the mood of the day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your background in art. Was it a love that started and was nurtured in school? No, I've always painted more for personal satisfaction or because I had a giant wall that I'm painting for. But I've always been creative. So I grew up in a family of contractors so I can build things and I can make things from wood or whatever. And and I've always painted walls and done those kind of things, um, murals on walls in my kids' rooms. So it's always been more of a personal thing. And then when we downsized houses. I didn't have as many responsibilities. So I had a lot more time to do something that made me really happy. And painting was one of them. So you don't have any formal training. You're self-taught through observation and trial and error. Yes, complete trial. It's always trial and error. (laughs) And I always say that the happy accidents are some of my best work. My husband will tell you his very favorite painting I have as one that's over our fireplace. And I had painted a barn scene with trees in the background. And and I just, I never liked it. And, you know, it was a big canvas. And one day I was like, oh, I'm painting over it. 
So I out in the garage and I literally grabbed a can of white paint. I think it was actually ceiling paint because I wanted a flat paint and painted over it. And it bubbled up because I had varnished it, which I didn't realize I'd done because I don't usually varnish something until I'm satisfied with it. And it bubbled up. And so you can only see very little snippets. Like I'm the person that knows what's under it but you can only see little bitty pieces of the painting that's underneath it. And it's his very favorite painting <laughs> and it's an accident <laughs> and I can't recreate it. I've tried. What does he love about it? I think he really loves the color palette and he knows that it's a happy accident <laughs> and it's very soothing. It's a very soothing piece. In what order did your various genres of painting involved? Did pop art beget abstract or did abstract beget landscapes? What's the evolutionary arc of your art? Where did you start? What genre did you start with? I started with stripes and then some pop art. And I think that was because it was very in control. Stripes are hard to paint because you have to make each stripe happy with the stripe that's next to it. So it's a challenge for me to do that sometimes because you know when it's wrong and you know when it's right. But getting to those two points sometimes is, is harder than it appears. And then from that, I would say the, the chaos because I, I realized I could be free to do whatever I wanted to do. Most people that go into my studio realize I very seldom ever use a paintbrush. The pop art would probably be the only thing that I, I typically use a paintbrush for. Otherwise, I use very random things, spatulas to Bondo scrapers to credit card to those fun tile in the, like the tile department that makes all kinds of crazy stripes in it. A piece of cardboard. Bubble wrap is one of my favorite. I love the way bubble wrap appears in the layers. And most of them have so many layers. Are brushes just too boring? They just don't deliver the texture that you want? They don't deliver the texture because it needs to be very random for me, unless it's like the controlled pop art that I'm looking for something very specific. Many days, my husband will walk in and he'll say, oh, that's a new one. I'm like, no, it's the same one you were looking at yesterday. I just didn't, didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so it, need, it needed to change. Something needed to change. And so they just, they really evolve. And, and sometimes then there will be a crazy one and I, I just can't get it to where I want it to be. So I'll paint over it and Maybe it'll turn into a landscape. It'll be a complete. So I'm the only one that knows really what's under it. I guess if they would unearth them someday, they would be surprised what's underneath them. Do you have a rule for yourself about at what point you decide a work is finished? Because with abstract works, with all paintings, really, I mean, you can carry on putting brush strokes on and adding layers and taking layers off, depending on what medium you're using. And at some point, you have to say goodbye go into the world and let the painting go. Do you have a philosophy about that? Normally, I will finish one in an evening, clean up, put my brushes away and think, I think it's done. And I take it upstairs and I have a very bright breakfast room and I lean it up against the chair in the breakfast room. And it's the first thing I see when I walk in, you know, get out of bed in the morning and walk in to have a cup of coffee. And so I usually sit with it with my morning coffee and look at it and decide if it's done. 
In your artist statement, you write about how you find yourself expressing perspective or reactions that you are not consciously aware of. And I'm curious at what point you do become aware of what your subconscious was encouraging you to paint and what kinds of perspectives and reactions you have discovered through your work. Well, I always have a book going. I use my Libby app religiously. So I always have earbuds in and a book going or a podcast going. And it's amazing how many times I've found that the painting sometimes reflects what book I'm listening to, whether it's a darker story or a brighter story or happy or sometimes a region if it's someplace I've been before or something I'm doing. Sometimes when I look back on them, I'm like, hmm, I was listening to something specific. And I think that does translate into what I'm doing. Does it translate in terms of the color palette you choose or the design you lay down? Definitely the color palette. I have only one that I, it was a painting called Windows of the World, and it has all of these abstract windows and doors in it. And I was listening to a book about different parts of Italy. And I think because that was one of my favorite things um, in traveling through Italy was all the, the windows and the doors and the colorful houses there. So it's the only one that's translatable in an actual shape. I'm always curious about what artists put on the walls of their own homes. And thanks to an article about your home in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, I do know about the pig's head above the fireplace, the pink deer in the kitchen and the pink skeleton who moves around (laughs) your house. Do you also buy work from other artists for your own walls or is the pink deer and the pig above the fireplace, are they all yours? Most of those are mine. But I do have other pieces, um, a lot from friends. I do have pieces of my children's work from college and high school and elementary school. And then just pieces from different art fairs. And, And generally when I travel, I always try to buy some small piece that I can tuck into a spot in my suitcase and bring home. (laughs) I love doing that. My house is a collection of everywhere that I've been in terms of the art that's on the walls. So besides the 2D bodies of work, you also love to make compositions from collections of random objects like old rotary dial telephones. Tell us about the Call Your Mother installation you created for the renovated St. Louis Post-Dispatch building. Well, the call to art went out for that piece, and a friend sent it to me and said, you should really do something. You should paint something. And as soon as I read the call, I immediately thought it needs to have a whole wall of old telephones. (laughs) And we have an old rotary dial telephone at the farm, and it's always amazed me how many kids, my daughter is 30, so how many kids that show up at the farm and want to call their cell phones with the rotary dial telephone (laughs) and then don't have any idea how to do it um, and are fascinated with it. But it's a phone that's so loud when it rings, you can hear it outside everywhere, that kind of thing. But I've always just been amazed with this age group of kids that are probably working in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch Most of the people that work in there, I doubt, have ever used a rotary dial telephone. So I thought it was interesting. I I do know one employee that she laughs that she walks by it every day and 
She says it makes me think, call my mother. (laughs) (laughs) How did you find them all? Were they easy on like eBay and places like that to find? I actually had a few that were from my father-in-law's business. And then it was during the pandemic that I collected them. So that was a little different. I asked friends and family for theirs. And those are probably the more basic black and red and that kind of thing. And then near the farm, there are several junk stores, antique stores, uh, collectible stores, that kind of thing. And most of them I found searching through those places. One guy took one off the wall. He said, no, it doesn't work anymore. I'll sell it to you. I was (laughs) like, okay. So he literally cut the cord and handed it to me (laughs) off the wall. So yeah, it was fun to collect. Only a few did I buy off of eBay or Etsy, the more unusual ones that I couldn't find other places. And then it was like Tetris in my studio because I hung them on the wall in my studio for months. I moved them around until I found a way that I felt that they were happy together. Is that a little bit like painting the stripes that some of them just didn't really want to be next to each other? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. My husband would come in and he's like, are you happy with it yet? I'm like, no. (laughs) And then I would find a new one that had to go into the mix. And then that would that would change because I knew the space that they were going in. And so I had that marked out on the wall. So final question, where can people see your work in person? Do you have any gallery exhibits or art fairs coming up this spring? There are a few stores in St. Louis, Story 7 and the Dollhouse and Union Studio in Webster. Those all have pieces of my original work. Okay, well, you can see the work of Kelly Carmen on her website at kellycarmen.com. And that's Kelly spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y. And Kelly, I hope we get to see your arts in Columbia, maybe before too long. That would be lovely. I would love that. Thank you for taking us on a little tour of your art today and for making time to chat. Thank you. Guitarist B.T. Sullivan grew up in Nevada, Missouri, where he says he started playing guitar at the age of eight, unless you include pretending a tennis racket was a guitar, in which case he started much earlier. He had his own band by the age of 13, toured the Midwest with another band right out of high school, then went on to study with legendary guitar players such as Joe Pass and Tommy Tedesco at the Musicians Institute in Los Angeles. He has taught guitar in Kansas City, performed in legendary venues around the country, and spent many years working as a producer and on-air talent for a commercial radio station. He also arranges music, is adept at playing songs from the Great American Songbook and usually goes by BT or Brother B. And he is my next guest this evening. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, BT. Hello, Diana. Great to be with you. You have had a long career, starting out in the world of rock when you were a teenager, then jazz. You played with multiple bands. But these days you are a solo guitarist. Do you miss being part of a band? Well, in some sense, I don't, and some sense, I do. I guess the reason I don't is that I'm my own man, and I don't have to work with others on scheduling or lifestyle things or anything like that. But, yeah, it would be good sometime to uh, play with a group. I've, I've done that a little bit in the past. Sometimes I'll sit in with a group here locally. So... 
Early on in your career, you decided to opt out of the band world, even though the band you were in had won three Southwest Missouri Battle of the Band contests and were doing really well. And you headed off to Los Angeles to attend the Musicians Institute. Talk to me a little bit about that decision and and also why you chose the Musicians Institute. Well, I had read about Musicians Institute in the guitar magazines that I read as a kid. And uh, it really sparked an interest in me. And I guess um, performing just kind of left me flat in my uh, desires. I started having these feelings of uh, certain kinds of music being a mystery to me. And I was so curious to find out how this other music was created. So I uh, thought I should probably study music to find out. So what was this style of music that suddenly fascinated you? Well, a lot of it was the jazz bebop, you know, with a lot of uh, improvisation, a lot of eighth note swing rhythms and things like that. It just fascinated me that uh, somebody could be that free on the instrument. Did you feel constricted then within the world of rock that you couldn't be who you wanted to be? Yeah, totally. Rock is more blues-based, and you're dealing mostly with pentatonic scales. And although you can take that very far, it's not quite as uh, complex as, uh, well, it's not at all as complex as what uh, the jazz guys are doing. So it was at the Musicians Institute that you got to meet and study with a virtuoso guitarist called Joe Pass, who played jazz guitar and often worked with people like Oscar Peterson and Ella Fitzgerald. How did Joe influence your guitar career? Well, the funny thing is, when I was around Joe, I didn't know who Joe was, really. I didn't know the history It's only been in the last few years since I've started doing the solo thing that I really even started studying the career of Joe Pass. And so uh, I was oblivious to his history back then. What was it about his, maybe his style of guitar playing that you really picked up on? I guess it would be uh, just the fact that he was an all-orchestrate guitar player. One of the few who plays the whole orchestration on the guitar. So explain that to me a little bit. I mean, you today you play music from the Great American Songbook, and it is music that is basically you're playing on a single guitar, a 50-piece orchestra musical arrangement. How is that even possible? Explain the background to that. Well, to make a song sound like a song, really you only need two elements. You need a melody, and you need the chord structure which could be called the harmony. And then, of course, if you can throw in bass lines and things like that, that's a a plus. But if you have those two elements of the chords and the melody, you get that sense of the song coming out. People will recognize what it is. So uh, trying to adapt a 50 orchestra piece of music to guitar, you're not going to get it all, but you get those basic elements of melody and harmony and hopefully a little bit of the rhythm and the bass line and get all that happening at once. And you, well, I won't say you sound close to it because you don't, of course, but uh, you get a sound that's pretty orchestrated for at least guitar. And that was something that Joe 
Pass was famous for doing. And you say that he is one of the few people that you ever heard who could do that. I mean, are there other people out there doing, making that same music that you do using the same orchestral arrangement? There are, but uh, I, I couldn't name any. And uh, I've heard through the grapevine of other people doing this, but uh, it's kind of going against what the instrument was designed to do, actually. Because a piano player, for instance, who usually writes this kind of stuff, you know, it, it, it only takes one hand for them to create a note. So uh, if you take one finger and push a note, you've, you've got sound on that one note. Whereas on guitar, you really need two hands, two fingers at a time to play one single note. Because one hand is picking the note and the other hand is fretting the note. Well, let's take a listen to a clip of you playing the guitar and, and uh, we're going to listen to After You've Gone. Tell us a little bit about the background to this song and your arrangement of it. I found that song in what they call fake books. And what a fake book is, I guess what you, you can take it literally, it's, uh, it's music written to fake the song. Uh, it usually just consists of a melody and the chord structure and then the musician with the right skills can take that limited information and create the sound of the song. And uh, I had never heard the song at all until maybe, you know, just a couple of years ago, I heard one group do it, a cowboy swing band, <laughs> believe it or not, called Riders in the Sky. Really good cowboy band, but, uh, you know, not what you'd expect <laughs> from a jazz player, you know. But I just chose the song because I like the look of the sheet music. Well, here it is, B.T. Sullivan playing After You've Gone. B.T. Sullivan playing After You've Gone. B.T., tell me a little bit about your guitar collection. How many guitars do you have? Well, really just one that I use. Okay. I have a couple gathering dust over in the corner, but I've always kind of been a one guitar 
guy, especially now that I have such a specialty kind of thing where I need a certain sound and a certain setup on the guitar. So what is your guitar of choice? This one is a uh, D'Angelico that is kind of a copy of the the Gibson 335, which is kind of known as being a jazz guitar somewhat. It's a guitar that I grew up seeing Larry Carlton play, and uh, he kind of influenced me a bit, so I always wanted to get one of those. And then when I started playing this style of music, you need that softer tone. So I uh, finally purchased this one. It didn't work out in the beginning, but uh, after a little study, or actually a lot of study on modifications and how to set it up and everything, I finally got it working and sounding just the way I want it to. So final question, what would be your dream venue to play in and who would you love to duet with? Duet? Mm Mm-hmm. I never thought about that, really. <laughs> i tell you, for me, one reason I like the um, solo guitar thing is that uh, you play, usually restaurants has been a big take for me. Sometimes banquets, you know. But the great thing about that is those take place, you know, around the 6 o'clock hour to the 8 o'clock hour. So I earn the money and then uh, you get to I'm home. in bed by 9 p.m. <laughs> now, what other, what other kind of gig can you say that about? You know, so. Well, you can hear the music of my guest, BT, or Brother B, or Brian, as his mum calls him, on his YouTube channel. Just search for BT in America. And he also has a new website that is under construction, which is btinamerica.com. And BT, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your musical career with us this evening and for making time to chat. Thank you. It was great talking to you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, sculptor Michael Bauermeister, spoken word poet Sherry Purpose-Hall, painter Kelly Carmen, and guitarist B.T. Sullivan. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!